Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A 2016 report issued by the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Research on Higher Learning determined that Pennsylvania ranks 49th in the nation for college affordability. The report, called the 2016 College Affordability Diagnosis, found that financial aid no longer covers an entire four-year education, that lower- and middle-income families face too many economic obstacles to effectively save for college, and too often, taking on debt has become the default option for students pursuing a degree. In her 2016 book, Paying the Price, College Cost, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream, Sarah Goldrick Rabb points to an economy that does not support the financial structure necessary to secure a college education. Joining us on the line from Philadelphia are our guests today, Dr. Joni Finney, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education and lead author of the 2016 College Affordability Diagnosis. Dr. Finney, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. Also, Dr. Sarah Goldrick-Rabb, author of Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream, and she's a Temple University professor of higher education policy and sociology. Dr. Goldrick-Rabb, welcome to the program. I appreciate you having me. And I want to tell our audience that uh, we probably have the two leading authorities on college affordability in this country. So this is an opportunity to talk about that if you have a question or a comment. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. And what I'm envisioning here today is you both have your own specialties, but uh, you kind of overlap with much of what you write and what you've researched so that we can have a, a three-way conversation and maybe even include our audience as well. Dr. Goldrick Rabb, let me start with you. Talk about the economic impact on families of college tuition 40 years ago compared to today. Well, you know, 40 years ago was a time when people understood that education was important and that if they decided to work hard for it, and save a little money and maybe work a little bit during college, it was something that they could afford to do. It was possible to make ends meet with the prices being what they were. You know, fast forward to today, and a lot, frankly, has changed over the last 15 years or so. This is no longer the case. You know, work doesn't work like it used to for college students. Prices are so much higher than they used to be, and they're higher at a time when most families, frankly, are not getting ahead. And the strategies that we used to use to get through college have mainly been reduced to one thing, which is taking out student loans. When did the U.S. economy uh, and a college tuition, excuse me, when did uh, this become onerous to families that uh, we were not able, families were not able to afford a college education? Well, let's be honest. I think for a long time, there have at least been some families that have been priced out of college. And we know this because the very lowest income families have frankly never really been in college very much at all. And one of the reasons is price. However, the number of families and the extent to which it it stretches up the income distribution to the middle class, the number of them having trouble has grown a lot. And one of the main reasons has had to do with changes in the economy in states like Pennsylvania, where over the last, say, 15 to 20 years, we've seen a real decline in state support for higher education 
which in turn means that individual families end up footing a larger portion of the bill. And it's that shift precisely at a time when families themselves actually can't afford to foot the larger part of the bill that's really created sort of a perfect storm. Dr. Finney, let me bring you into this because your research uh, did not just focus on Pennsylvania. You looked at all, uh, you know, across the country, but you did have a section on Pennsylvania. And as I said in the introduction, it found that uh, Pennsylvania ranked 49th out of the 50 states for for affordability of higher education. Why and how did you get uh, to that point or how did we get to that point? Well, uh, Pennsylvania has always been uh, more expensive in terms of public higher education than other states, and they thought that they could support students by having a model of high tuition and high financial aid. And what's happened is financial aid dollars have to be spread over more students, and so the amount per student has gone down, even though the state has maintained Uh, a really impressive commitment to financial aid. And uh, tuition um, and room and board have gone up. Um, Now, I will say in terms of the state commitment to uh, higher education since the recession, if you go from 2008 to 2015, the most recent year for which we have data, the state is down 0.8%. uh, per FTE, so but the the rest of the country is up point uh, is up seven point nine percent. So that's a big difference. Now, Pennsylvania went into this recession uh, with more money appropriating more money per student than other states. So it's not a completely uh, resource poor state. We have to really look at how we use that money better and then commit additional resources to the students and the institutions uh, educating the lower-income students that Sarah is talking about. So if I can simplify this, and I mean, uh, obviously I want you, the two of you, to uh, comment on this. It sounds like, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Goldrick-Rab, you used uh, the description perfect storm. Okay, it sounds like incomes have been stagnant while tuitions have continued to rise, even though Pennsylvania is uh, does is a high state as far as, as a state that provides a high amount of uh, financial aid. Our public universities like Penn State, Temple, Pitt, uh, Lincoln, and uh, the state system of higher education, that our tuitions are higher than most public universities. All those things, would that be a simple way of describing what's going on here? Yes, I think that's right, but I think there's even a little bit more that I'd like to add to that. The first is there are simply more people wanting to go to college today than in the past. We've got more people finishing high school than in the past, and a greater number of those who finish, you know, feel that, frankly, you know, for better or for worse, they need to go to college. And that's a change. You know, that's part of why, on a per-student basis, there isn't as much financial aid as there was in the past, because more people are going to college, and, frankly, more people qualify for financial aid. That's one that we have to add to that mix. There's just more people to cover. And the second issue is that, frankly, tuition is just a small fraction of what it really costs to go to college. The rest of the cost of going to college are what some might think of as living expenses. 
things like the cost of housing and the cost of food, transportation, medical expenses, all of these things have to be covered in college. And the problem is you can't spend all your time working because you need to be in the classroom. Those living costs have continued to rise, including in Pennsylvania, even though the amount of financial aid people are getting is, is not going up at that same rate. So that's another related issue. Is Frankly, a lot of students are having trouble just paying their rent. Dr. Finney, you looked ahead, your research looked ahead to the future and what Pennsylvania jobs or careers would require as far as education goes. What did you find? Well, 63% of the jobs in Pennsylvania between now and 2025 will require some kind of education and training beyond high school. And Pennsylvania is nowhere near meeting that need. And this happens at the same time that we're seeing uh, baby boomers, the most educated generation, exit the workforce. And it happens at the same time where we see flat high school graduation. I mean, in terms of a young population, the number of high school uh, students is flat or slightly declining. So it means Pennsylvania has to uh, really uh, do better in terms of getting more young people to enroll in post-secondary education. And they've also uh, got to develop a plan to reach out to adults if they want to uh, meet these sort of global standards of um, if they want to be part of the knowledge economy. Well, let's talk about what that means for the future. I mean, this is kind of jumping ahead. But if these things don't happen that you're talking about, where college uh, becomes uh, unaffordable for uh, so many, especially low and uh, middle income uh, uh, students, what does that mean for the future? And then we'll also break it down uh, by race, because there is a difference in, uh, in, in races, at least what the research found. So what does this mean for the future? if this doesn't happen? Well, I, I think what it means is Pennsylvania will be less competitive, and those groups that are currently disenfranchised that have low-income minimum wage jobs, those numbers will increase, and they will have just less opportunity, and that will hurt uh, individuals, and it will hurt uh, the state as a whole. Mm. Uh, Dr. Godrick Rab, what do you think about that? Well, I think about the effects, both in terms of the sorts of things that were just described, you know, the effects on the state's economy. But frankly, there's also an effect on just how people feel and how people talk and how people vote around this state. You know, it, there are a lot of people who have already been priced out of college around this country, and frankly, they're angry. They're, they, you know, they don't have a college education, not because they didn't want one, but because they couldn't afford one. And it feels to them like a betrayal. It feels like they were told that if they worked hard and they wanted an education, they'd be able to do that and get, an, you know, get a leg up in the middle class, and they haven't been able to. So I think that the ramifications go you know, even further than sort of just our short-term economic issues to a question of, of you know, who we're going to be as a state. Mm-hmm. We have uh, several callers, and a couple, uh, a few of them have similar questions. But let's go to uh, Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Bill, and ladies. Um, I I could go on for quite a while on this, but I'll try and make it as short as, as succinct as possible. Now, the first thing is, 
not everybody needs to go to college. There is a mistaken notion that everybody has to go to college, and it's not true. Your WITF shows, particularly this old house, has been running a number of commercials that say, we can't get enough electricians, carpenters, plumbers. There aren't out there. Everybody wants to go to college. But you can get good training to be one of these craftsmen and make a very nice income for the middle class. Plus, when you look at the bang for the buck, you get a hell of a lot better results by increasing the spending to uh, the high schools and making them a real fountain of education like it used to be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago instead of the uh, more babysitting and a little bit of education that they get today. All right, Bill, thank you very much for your call. Dr. Finney, uh, you in particular uh, mentioned uh, you, you said some type of higher education uh, training. Uh, so I assume you're not just talking about a four-year college That's education. Correct. That's correct. We're actually talking about the kinds of things that uh, Bill mentioned, uh, uh, workforce uh, certificates of value, so people can participate in high-end manufacturing, and so those kinds of businesses could be uh, attracted to Pennsylvania. We're also talking about uh, the need for associate degrees as well as the need for baccalaureate degrees. So it runs the whole gamut. Uh, it's not just uh, bachelor's degrees. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about college affordability today. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Goldrick-Rab, author of the book Paying the Price, College Cost, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream, and a Temple University professor of higher education policy and sociology. Also, Dr. Joni Finney, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education and lead author of the 2016 College Affordability Diagnosis. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-75. 32. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at smarttalk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Before we take uh, more phone calls, I want to play something for you from uh, President Trump. This was when he was campaigning in Pennsylvania talking about uh, college affordability. These huge multi-billion dollar endowments are tax-free, but too many of these universities don't use the money to help with the tuition and student debt. Instead, these universities use the money to pay their administrators or put donors' names on buildings or just store the money, keep it, and invest it. In fact, many universities spend more on private equity fund managers than on tuition programs. Dr. Goldrick Rab, that's a little bit off topic, but uh, it was I was trying to find a sound clip where uh, the new president was addressing college affordability and higher education. Your thoughts on uh, what he had to say? He's echoing something that's hardly a new thought, right? That that we're concerned that institutions, you know, have money that they might not be spending on these concerns about affordability. Um, it's important to note that very, very few institutions in the state of Pennsylvania 
have endowments in the billions. Just want to note, you know, the University of Pennsylvania certainly does. Um, Penn State system-wide does. Temple has nowhere near even a billion dollars. So this is this is by no means sort of the, the main issue that's confronting Pennsylvania families. Um, taxing endowments isn't going to do very much for most people. Um, but this larger question about where does money go and is it being spent to ensure that first and foremost college is affordable, you know, that's a reasonable question to raise. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about debt because both of you have talked about how that has become the default option. Uh, Dr. Goldrick Rabb, an 18-year-old in this country turning 19 with thousands of dollars in debt, graduating with a five-figure debt must have a devastating impact on both their personal development and also the economy. I mean, already we're seeing millennials waiting until their 30s to get married, not buying homes, living with their parents. Uh, car manufacturers can't sell new cars to millennials because of their commitment to student debt. So what's this mean for this generation of Americans graduating into adulthood already in the red behind the eight ball. Yeah. Well, first, let me reframe that just slightly, because I think that the the one big problem that we have is a lot of people are really focused on thinking about student debt as a problem when somebody has, you know, five or six figures, usually six figures of student debt. They keep thinking, these people have $100,000 or $200,000. Frankly, they don't. Very few people have that kind of debt. And if they do, they went to graduate school. The the real person who's out there struggling with student debt actually didn't get a college degree, and that's the real crisis. They went to a year or two of college and nonetheless still had to accumulate debt even for that first year or two because college has gotten so expensive even at community colleges, even at the kinds of places that your caller bill, I think, would support because they're helping people to become mechanics and to do construction work effectively. They've got maybe $5,000 of debt. The problem is they didn't get a degree, and they're having real trouble paying off that 5000 And you're right, it is holding them back. The other thing, however, that's happened at the same time to all of these millennials, and is one reason that they're not buying homes and they're having trouble getting ahead in their lives, is that they have come out into adulthood in a pretty lousy economy. And that economy has you know, many implications for them. You know, many of them grew up during the Great Recession and came out during that time. And so it's that sort of plus the debt that's creating these problems. And both issues really need to be addressed. Just to follow up on what you said about, uh, you know, those who are really in trouble or those who went to a year or two of college and quit. But at the same time, those who did graduate with a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree, I think the average, the last I saw in Pennsylvania, was at least $25,000. And uh, I just wanted to add that part. Dr. Finney, something your research showed, and I have to admit that I was a little bit surprised with this because you measured average debt or you know, compared, comparing uh, like four-year public institutions, four-year private institutions, two-year, you know, broke it all down. And the highest debt load was those four-year uh, public institutions like Penn State, like Temple, like Pitt, that it was like $5,100 compared to like, say, a private college in Pennsylvania where tuitions are anywhere from thirty-five dollars to $50,000 a year. Now, I've heard the presidents of those, those colleges say no one pays full tuition, but that debt for a public university, I have to admit that surprised me somewhat. So uh, students said 
private universities tend to, especially selective private universities, tend to uh, receive more financial aid uh, from the institution than do students at public uh, universities. And they, they tend to attract wealthier students, like the University of Pennsylvania. So their students do not have to borrow as much. And what's happened in Pennsylvania, actually, the students at public four-year non-doctoral, your state colleges and universities, your PASHI system, are, uh, have uh, greater debt levels than students at public research universities like Penn State, Temple, and Pitt. And so that's a reflection of uh, PASHI attracting uh, lower-income students, middle- and lower-income students, and uh, the public research universities attracting wealthier students and also providing more financial aid. So, so the students who are, are uh, paying a fair amount in tuition are also borrowing uh, a lot in terms of money. And I, I think it's really important to come back to your earlier point, Scott, that uh, debt has become uh, the default mechanism for finance policy in Pennsylvania in terms of uh, college affordability. And that's not a way to think about how we finance and, uh, you know, how to provide affordable higher education for students in the future. You know, I have heard economists say and others uh, who, when they talk about the education policy or policy overall, that student debt will be the ne- next great bubble that will create a, a problem in our economy. I wanted to get your take on from both of you on that. Dr. Goldrick Rabb, what do you think of that? I mean, I think the general idea that the debt is getting so big that people will push back, that we will see, for example, people question whether college is worth it. That general notion, I think, is right, absent any real action, right? And I think that that's starting to be what we're seeing. We saw some of that during the campaign. I mean, it's really quite something to see so many people finally asking the question, why are we paying so much? and trying to get a handle on a better way of pricing higher ed so that they can afford it for them and their kids. But what's missing from this discussion at this point is a real sense of what really can be done about this. Well, I was getting there. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, you know, we have to talk about the role that, you know, Pennsylvanians and others have played in you know, there, there are so many other priorities that they have, and when they think about where money is going to go, they do. They think about other priorities, but that has allowed the price of higher education to rise in this and other states. And so it really is going to have to become something that families say, look, this really matters to us, and we need our state legislators to really take action and support the governor's efforts to really try to make college more fair. Dr. Finney, what do you think? I, I think Sarah's right. I, you know, um, enrollment is still going up because I think American families have realized that getting some education beyond high school is just about the only way you get into the American middle class. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be a baccalaureate degree. So you see rising debt levels at the same time that you see growing enrollments. But in some states, we have now seen enough pushback um, 
you know, where enrollments are declining or institutions are managing enrollments down because they didn't get the appropriation they need from the state to operate at the same level. So uh, a lot of people will be priced out. And I I think that there are people, as Sarah said, that are, are just reconsidering uh, the value proposition. This is getting so expensive. And if your family is making $50,000 or less a year, you really have to think hard about, you know, can you afford that debt burden and uh, will it pay off in the future? In your research, you actually used a formula to determine a college affordability. Tell us a little bit about uh, your methodology. Okay, so what we did is uh, we looked at uh, tuition and mandatory fees plus room and board and books. So we did take into account the living expenses uh, for the point that Sarah, for the very reason that Sarah mentioned earlier, it's important to consider that. And then we weighted it by uh, enrollment in each sector and then looked at the percent of family income to pay this uh, tuition room and board, books and fees, minus all financial aid. That would be federal, state, and institutional. And so we came up with a percent of income. And indeed, you know, what we found is that students in Pennsylvania, the 17% that are enrolled in public research universities pay 47% of their annual income to attend one of those institutions. For a public four-year non-doctoral, they pay 37%, and for a community college, 19%. Uh, and so the result of all of this is Pennsylvania has the most expensive public research universities for students and families in the nation. They rank 47th on public four-year non-doctoral institutions, your passion institutions, and 36% on public two-year institutions, the institutions that should be the safety net of higher education. So we have a long way to go in terms of creating affordable higher education in this state, and it involves a lot of different elements, and so I won't go there until you're ready. Oh, well, we can talk about it in just a moment, but I do want to get a few phone calls and emails in here. Don is in Harrisburg. Don, you're on the air. Hello, Don. Well, Don's question was, he wanted to know why college has to be four years in length. I I assume he's talking about getting a bachelor's degree. Why not reduce it to three years? Either one of you want to tackle that? Sure. I'll tell you one reason. Oh, no. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Joni. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, Well, I think for many students, three years uh, can and should be an option. It's not an option for all students, but certainly those students attending public research universities who come into the institution with a lot of AP courses and with community college courses, and that gives them usually a leg up in admissions, but it doesn't get them through the system faster. And I think that there are probably a portion of students who could do that. When I um, worked in California, we took a careful look at this at the University of California, which, like the public research university system here, accepts a very selective group of students. And we found that 25% of them basically came into the institution, were admitted, and had at least the equivalent of one semester's 
worth of coursework if it were counted. And that would save the state an enormous amount of money. So I think that's one option of many that should be considered. Sarah, what do you think? Well, I think that first we need to note that four years is actually a good deal right now. There are so many people who are taking five or even six years to get a bachelor's degree and who are taking three years to get an associate degree. But fortunately, there are things that we know will reduce the time it takes students to get through college. And one of those things is to make it more affordable for them. So a lot of people think that if students pay more, they go faster through college. It's actually really not true. It's the opposite. If students can afford to spend time in school rather than working long hours and being distracted from school, studies have shown that they will, in fact, complete faster. I ran a study where we gave students more grant aid to try to help them work less and study more. In fact, their four-year on-time graduation rates went up. So it's a funny thing. You know, we say, why can't we just cut the time of college? We would cut the time of college if only we made it more affordable. And I do want to get to some of the solutions because I know that's what everyone is is, is waiting for. But, uh, Sarah, in the book, uh, you know, and you, you've touched on this during our program today, and that is uh, students working their way through colleges. I mean, this used to be the way that uh, a low-income or a middle-income student maybe not pay the entire tuition or for room and a board and books and everything, but at least contributed a, a good portion of it. And you write that that is not really realistic today. You describe a student named Chloe Johnson working three jobs to keep out of debt. How can students focus their attention on academics while working full-time or juggling a couple of part-time jobs a week? I mean, it sounds as if, I don't know, I, there, there aren't enough hours in the day. Well, that's exactly right, and that, that really is the problem. I mean, I, I support, and I'm sure many of your listeners support, the general idea that working during college is a fine thing to do. The problem is there just isn't the kind of work out there that one needs to successfully work during college. What you need is a good, single, part-time job that pays a decent wage with a nice boss who understands that you're in school and accommodates your schedule. Those days, and, and those I, jobs can I add to are, that, are almost over. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, Sarah. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, well, I'm sorry, Joni. What were you going to say? I, I was just going to add to that and making sure that students don't work in excess of 15 to 20 hours a week. Uh, well, which really yes, uh, yes. Although although we've seen some of them do so, if they do so only at one job, I think in many cases what's happening is that students are actually piling on several part-time jobs to add up to even like 20 hours, and it's really difficult to juggle multiple bosses. For example, one who says, "I don't know what time I'm going to need you tomorrow. Maybe I'll need you at three o'clock." Well, you've got class at three o'clock. The other problem that we're seeing, frankly is students who need the hours in order to make ends meet but can't even get enough hours. And so there's an underemployment problem that's affecting these students, just like it's affecting regular people all throughout the state. And so this is one of the reasons that work just doesn't work like it used to for college students. 
You know, I've had, uh, we have a lot of colleges and universities here in central Pennsylvania, and I've had the, the president of those colleges and universities on our program many times. Always enjoy those conversations because we talk about a lot of different things. But cost, obviously, is one of the big factors. Almost every single president of a, an institution I've spoken to, they, that one of the emphasis they make is we have to make our school more affordable for college students, especially low-income students. Uh, you know, even even a lot of what would be considered uh, the more expensive private institutions. So they are aware of it, but at the same time, from what you're describing, the tuitions and the cost and the affordability that it just keeps a, a wider disparity. So. How much of a role can the institutions themselves play in trying to control these costs and make their universities, their colleges, more affordable? Joni, let's start with you. Well, first of all, it is a compact, and it has to be a compact between students and families, the state and the institutions. Uh, institutions need to improve their productivity. And we talked a bit about that with a previous caller, you know, about, you know, can students get through in uh, less than four years? And there are other ways that institutions can improve productivity. They can also put a cap on tuition or at least link tuition to growth in family income in this state. I mean, tuition policy, I mean, we basically have no tuition policy in Pennsylvania. It's as much as you can raise it without getting political pushback. And that is not a policy. And and we actually have no uh, state policy for financing higher education. It's based on what we did the year before. If we can give you a little bit more, that's great. If we can't, well, you're just going to have to suck it up. So Pennsylvania lacks uh, any kind of structure for state policy leadership in terms of uh, master planning. Uh, in terms of how many, we don't even know how many students we need to educate to get to um, the 63% with some education beyond high school. And we don't know how we would distribute them throughout the system. We have a very expensive uh, structure in Pennsylvania where we enroll a third of our students uh, excuse me, 17% of our students in public research universities. Um, and and that those are the most expensive options. And the public research universities have created branch campuses all over the place, and so we don't have a very fully developed public two-year system of higher education because branch campuses ultimately want to be like the main campus, like uh, State College. And they, the faculty want to be paid the same. They want the same teaching load and things of that nature. And so Pennsylvania, there's a lot of work to do. And I put the responsibility on the state leaders for leading this dialogue and thinking about it comprehensively. Other states have been able to do this or at least get closer. And there's no reason why Pennsylvania can't. Sarah, what are some of the solutions in your mind? Well, I think that we are seeing a few things across the state that I, you know, think are worth 
worth scaling up, for example. You know, I moved here from Wisconsin earlier this year, and I chose Temple University for a reason, because I was impressed by some of the, the overt commitments of this this public research university in the city of Philadelphia to the people of Philadelphia and, and keeping college affordable. So, for example, we've got a, we've got a plan called Fly in Four that's really trying to emphasize students completing college in four years, and they do it exactly like I said earlier, which is by buying them out of work and also making sure they can get the classes they need. You know, doing that at a place like Temple where there are large numbers of students from lower-income families and in a very diverse setting without an enormous endowment, that's a big undertaking. And it's harder to do it there than to do it at a place where, you know, everybody comes in with very high test scores and lots of family money. So the problem is we need to see scale. Um, The Community College of Philadelphia has acknowledged, for example, that so one of the reasons their students are having trouble graduating, some of them, is that, frankly, some of them don't have a roof over their heads. You know, they have an initiative for homeless college students there. I don't think many people realize the depth to which these problems of paying for college are affecting, you know, students' lives and holding back development and economic development in major cities like Philadelphia. There are things that we can be doing to make college more affordable, to make living costs lower, to put campus food pantries into place, so that people can eat, so they can pass their test when they go to camp, you know, college. These, these are all things that we can get together on. Let's take some phone calls. Uh, David is in Tower City. David, you're on the air. Hello, David. Okay, I guess David's no longer there. He has a daughter who goes to Gettysburg College and has three jobs, and uh, she's getting some help from parents, and he said that uh, she's barely making it as well. Let's go to Dan in Chambersburg. Dan, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, I wanted to, you guys were talking earlier about um, the fact that you know students have to take part-time jobs and it's really hard to earn the money nowadays to get uh, to afford college. But even in my experience, after you graduate from college, there are a lot of uh, jobs out there that require you to have a bachelor's degree that don't pay you anything near what it would take to pay back your student loans. And I just wanted to see what your guests had to say about the fact that, you know, you can, you know, you get, you can barely find a place now that even wants to pay you back for the college that they require you to have to get their job. Dan, thank you very much for your call. And I, sir, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier that uh, with this stagnant economy, that uh, you kind of touched on this that there aren't many jobs out there or careers starting right out of school that uh, you can that can help you to afford to pay back those loans. Well, this is this is true, and you know, frankly, it's never been the case that the big economic boost that you get from the bachelor's degree comes right after you get out of college. That's never, ever been true. It's always been the case that it can take a person who graduates from college into their 20s, you know, into their, into their late 30s before they're really getting a real leg up economically. The problem is that the debt is coming due right after you finish. And so... You know, there's been some discussion, for example, about delaying those debt payments and not making you pay them until you are further along in your career. That's one possibility. I I think that's too complicated, though, frankly. I think we don't want to have a society where people are too afraid to go to college because they're afraid they can't repay their debt. I think that just means we've got to drive down that debt. 
because we can't afford for people to to look like your caller does and say, you know what, it's not even going to be worth it to go to college. Because college, frankly, is not only about making more money in your job. And I think most of us know this. You know, we know you learn important things. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to write better. You learn how to do all kinds of things that you and your children and your family and your community needs you to learn how to do. So this debt is, frankly, becoming a real distraction. Ladies, we're almost out of time. I want to thank both of you uh, for being with us today. Obviously, a lot to talk and a lot, of, a lot to think about. If I could get each one of you in like 60 seconds to uh, kind of summarize where we need to go if this is important to us as a society, especially here in Pennsylvania. Sarah, let me start with you. Uh, in that 60 seconds or less, where do we need to go with this? We need to start by talking to each other, talking to our neighbors, talking to the people in our community, and coming to some understanding that we agree college is not affordable and it's time to do something about it in Pennsylvania. Frankly, too many people are complaining or they're saving for college. Neither of those strategies is going to make college affordable. Only by going and voting for people who will drive down these prices by investing in higher education, by investing in support to make sure that that housing when you go to college is affordable, that food when you go to college is, is affordable, that books are affordable. Only by doing that will you create real change. Joni Finney, what about you? I agree with Sarah that we really have to drive down the total educational costs for students. I think part of the solution comes uh, at the state level, and I think we have to hold elected uh, leaders accountable for addressing this issue on behalf of the Commonwealth. No, and I, and I said 60 seconds, but you both kind of touched on, you, you both have said about, uh, you know, policymakers in, in Harrisburg and, and in Washington, I assume. But what about the, the institutions themselves, Joni? Well, I think the institutions could commit more uh, money to student financial aid. And I think they need to worry a lot less about their rankings and uh, prestige measures and more about making sure uh, their students don't have to work and uh, driving down prices. Mm -hmm. Dr. Joni Finney is uh, with the University of Pennsylvania, professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education and lead author of the 2016 College Affordability Diagnosis. And Dr. Sarah Goldrick-Rabb, professor of higher education policy and sociology at Temple University and author of the book, Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid and the Betrayal of the American Dream. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. At one time, Stephen Reed was hailed as the city of Harrisburg's mayor for life. He was that popular during most of his 28 years in office after leading a makeover of the city. But one of Reed's strategies to make Harrisburg a destination for visitors and tourists was to build several what he called world-class museums. For one, he began collecting artifacts for a museum of the Old West, using money from a city fund to pay for them. Yesterday, Reed pleaded guilty on 20 criminal charges related to the artifacts and whether he stole them, whether he misappropriated money. At one time, he was facing over 500, over 500 charges, but yet uh, pleaded guilty to 20 charges yesterday. Here's what he had to say. The precepts of faith require that I take responsibility for this error, and that was my ultimate deciding factor in doing this plea. 
Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Emily Preferty was there yesterday and has been covering this case. Emily, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. All right. For those who may not be familiar with the case, it's hard to not be here in central Pennsylvania. But for someone who is not familiar, give us a little bit of background about Steve Reed and what he was looking to do and what went wrong. So, as you said, the mayor was known as the Harrisburg's mayor for life. He was in office for 28 years. um, And one of the things that Harrisburg has struggled with, like lots of cities, particularly if they're a county seat, which Harrisburg is, in addition to being um, the state capital, uh, lots of government buildings, they're off the tax rolls, limited revenue. They also have a high poverty rate. So the mayor was looking for ways to generate revenue. Um, You know, we know about the incinerator and how that was one that ended up being a, a debt trap. But then also he was hoping to draw Um, drive local tourism by uh, opening a series of museums. Uh, One open, that was the National Civil War Museum. There's also Pennsylvania's National Fire Museum that he was instrumental um, in in sort of bringing together. But most of the other museums that he envisioned, um, most famously one focused on the Old American West or the Wild West Museum, um, never came to fruition. But thousands of objects were bought to fill these museums that never opened. What money did he use? So he used, well, it depends on, I mean, there were multiple sources of money, um, basically not tax dollars. So it wasn't tax revenue in the general fund or anything like that, um, but it was still public money. Um, So one source of funds might have been, you know, the, uh, the Harrisburg Authority, guarantees a debt that another public entity such as a school district might issue and they were given a um you know a, a, a fee a lump sum for providing their guarantee and, and a lower um a lower interest rate that then the school district was able to get on that borrowing and that lump sum that's one example of something that um of a source of funds it's still public funds but it's not exactly tax dollars the Harrisburg authority obviously was getting its money from um, ratepayers um, for the water and sewer system so uh, there was some dispute about money being moved around um, and other sources of the funds that we didn't really get to um, those charges were dropped and I mean we didn't even get to trial on the remaining charges. Well so. let's talk about that as I said at one time he faced hundreds of, of, of criminal charges what was he charged with give us a general sense of what uh, the Attorney General's office thought he was doing that was illegal. So when the mayor was first arrested uh, for former uh, Attorney General Kathleen Kane kind of painted him as this mastermind behind financial schemes that were um, you know at the root of why of Harrisburg almost uh, going bankrupt or filing for municipal bankruptcy. Uh, So there were corruption, bribery, racketeering charges, theft by deception, things along those lines. And there was the artifact theft. So that's generally what the mayor was facing when when he was arrested back in in July of 2015. Bribery. uh, Any. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, so basically bribing or pressuring members of city council and, and uh, the, the school board to go through with bond deals that he, he wanted to happen. Um, maybe they weren't the wisest financial decisions that all the time. That had nothing to do with the artifacts, did it? That had to I do mean, with refinancing. Uh, there was a repair it, for the trash burning incinerator. So, I mean, it. well, actually, so we talked about the guarantees and the lump sum sort of um, thank you payment to the guarantor. So that's one example of 
some of of the the pressure um and also the mayor had this uh discretionary fund that city council um you know there was dispute over how much oversight city council actually had over that so it it was tied in to the artifacts oh okay all right so he he pleaded guilty yesterday to 20 charges we heard what he said he still don't think he still doesn't think he did anything wrong um I don't know if I'd say that exactly. Okay. I All mean, right. he okay. well, what he said was... Or illegal, I should say. So we we heard the cut where he was talking about his faith. Um, he went on to say that he believed it was the right thing to do, that he figures he, he had this stuff in his possession, the 20 objects that he pleaded guilty to stealing. He says he has them by accident. He figures that it happened, that he scooped them up while... People were packing his office when he was moving out of City Hall in 2009, but that that happened under his watch. So he will take responsibility for it. Um, and he did say, you know, that he finds this whole ordeal. His exact words were gut wrenchingly embar- um, humiliating and embarrassing. Mm. So he will be sentenced on Friday, from what I understand. Uh, Mayor Reed is uh, 67 years old, and uh, I don't know where uh, he stands with cancer, but at one time uh, he was fighting cancer. I assume he still is yeah. and being treated for it. Um, any speculation? Have you heard from any, you know, what the attorney general's office is looking for as far as the sentence goes? They said that they're not looking for the max, that they're look, looking for what they call the standard um, standard range, standard sentencing range. So that's anywhere from probation to nine months in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know uh, what this this comes down to, and this is it's a tragic story because, uh, as we said in the introduction, that uh, Steve Reed was hailed as a hero in in this city, and uh, it just seems as though uh, many people have described him as getting too powerful. But something I wanted to ask you. Uh, okay, coming up with an idea for five museums uh, to attract visitors become a tourist destination you know when you are limited in ways that uh, industries you can create creating jobs sounds like a good idea on the surface but this almost sounds like and i've heard people say this that this was steve reed's hobby yes that it was something exactly. that he enjoyed and and found fascinating right. and like passing the time and it got out of hand sure so i mean as we said this was on on the surface a good idea for maybe boosting tourism and stuff but it's hard to really fathom that that would be the end-all be-all solution to the city's limited um you know financial means and yeah he i mean and he even said yesterday that it that he's a collector this was a hobby and he was in the habit of when he would go out to peruse um you know different shows and things to buy artifacts for these museums he says he buys very similar stuff and that is another reason um, he didn't realize that he had stuff that belonged to the city. And there was a lot of poor record keeping, not knowing what was paid for right. what. Uh, rumors that, more than rumors, I think, uh, I think it was pretty much documented that he overpaid for a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Emily Previty, Keystone Crossroads reporter. Emily, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WITF is part of a collaboration with three other public media organizations. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on Keystone Crossroads. It's supported regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace, and Newark. Franco Harris joins us tomorrow. Uh, We talk about early childhood education.